You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Fair Game Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Smith. Today's guest is one I am thrilled to have on the show. She appears at conventions and fairs across the country, both as a speaker and as a guest promoting these events we love. She has her own podcast called Marla by the Numbers, and her role as the president of IAFE has put her in a position to help guide this industry in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Ladies and gentlemen, from Springfield, Missouri, this is Miss Marla Calico. Marla, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be with you today. So I've got a hunch most everyone in our industry knows exactly who you are, but for my five or six listeners... Um, <laughs> Could you give a brief background on who you are and who you can, how you came to be with IEFE? Sure, absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. Well, you know what? I'm a farm girl. I grew up on a dairy farm in Southwest Missouri, and I was very active in 4-H. And uh, the last two years of my high school, uh, when they finally allowed women into FFA, that will date me, uh, I was able to be part of FFA. And having participated in those uh, really set the groundwork for me to get involved in the fair industry, because uh, two years later, uh, after I graduated from high school, um, I was looking for a summer job and I went to my 4-H extension agent looking for a summer job and he said, you know, at the Ozark Empire Fair, they're looking for someone that knows something about livestock shows to be a clerk. And so fast forward, I ended up spending 29 years of my life at the Ozark Empire Fair in Springfield, Missouri. I was livestock clerk and eventually became assistant manager and I, I served as the CEO of that organization for 10 years. And in my last year at Ozark Empire Fair, I was also the chair of the IAFE. And so uh, I had been very, very active in all of my career serving on committees and, and being as engaged a volunteer as I possibly could be. I left the industry for a little bit of time. Uh, you know, I was getting middle aged and I felt like I maybe ought to try something new. Uh, but fairs called me back. And in the process of looking at a couple of fair CEO positions, Jim Tucker offered me a job here at IAFE. And so I've been on staff since uh, for, for 14 years, since September of 2006, uh, being the director of education and then became the president and CEO, uh, assumed that duty in January 2016. I remember, as I remember being at IFE when um, Jim had announced that he was going to hang it up. And I remember people, we were talking in the trade show, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think they'll bring in someone from outside? Do you think that they, all this talk? And I said, are you kidding me? They're going to hire Marla. <laughs> And I said, are you sure that, well, they have to go through the process. Yeah, yeah, they, they got a process they got to go through, but let's be real. Marla can seamlessly take over this position. And it, well, it works you. out that way. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And it, it's been, it, it truly has been great. I enjoy it. It's a fabulous industry. It's a fabulous uh, company association to work for. So Sarah and I wanted to produce this season of the Fair Game. Um, initially, we were talking about doing it back in, in February, March, and decided because we had been booked in with the Sydney Royal Easter show that we were going to hold off until after that show, you know, big international run. Uh, and then things started to fall apart. And we decided, you know, March, April, May was not a great time to talk to fairs about how they were doing. Um, and, I, you know, I think for the vast majority of us in this industry, we can look back at January and February and we were hearing about this virus getting going, but I don't think a lot of us really saw how serious it was going to be until March 11th. And that was the day World Health said, yep, it's a pandemic, but it was for us, it was also the day that Houston Livestock Show canceled. Um, and I think a lot of us went, oh, our eyes were opened. 
was that when you realized the potential magnitude of this crisis or were you starting to see things unfold even earlier? Earlier. Uh, quite honestly, I was, I was in Australia in January when the news really started breaking about it. And in fact, even in January, I was fearful whether or not I would make it home. Uh, I was just glad that they hadn't shut the borders. Um, and a little bit of uneasiness then into early February, but I actually, I remember the date and time exactly, and it was Wednesday, February 26th for me. Uh, I began to get a couple of calls from some members of saying, I, I'm really concerned concerned about this. And I said, I am too. And then on the very next day, um, we started getting some information that had us very, very concerned. And so by February uh, 28th, we as an association were actually working on that weekend contingency plans on all of our own meetings, knowing that meetings would be immediately impacted and concerned that the fairs would as well. But, you know, it, it was just so unknown we didn't know what to do other than to just start saying, we're going to have to have some plans. At the point that, that Houston canceled there, then, you know, a couple weeks, not even two weeks after that date you were talking about, um, I, I take it that didn't so much catch you by surprise at that point. Actually, no, because we had had a meeting. We had one meeting scheduled, a zone meeting, uh, February 28, um, 29, and March 1. This was leap year. And then we sent Kate and Brittany from our staff on Monday. They headed toward uh, Columbus, Ohio, for a small seminar that we had planned. And before they had cleared St. Louis on Monday, they were getting calls from uh, uh, folks in Columbus that a big event that we were going to take our group to was going to be closed to the public. And so while Kate and Brittany are driving, I'm working, searching, Googling, trying to find things out, working on contingency plans. And by Wednesday, so this was a full week before Houston, we knew some of our folks couldn't even come to the meeting. And we, and I hate this word, we pivoted our entire program while for those folks. And it was the best and the brightest of our industry, the advertising and marketing professionals, sponsorship gurus. We spent like a whole day Kate and Brittany there, I was here on Zoom and, and we were spent talking about what is this going to do, to do to us? How are we going to impact it? And we had a case study right there in Columbus with um, one of the sponsorship firms that was in charge of the sponsorship for this company. So it's, yeah, we were getting edgy, but I don't know. I don't know that anybody could have envisioned the full industry wide impact at that time. I think right. we were all thinking, you know, six weeks, eight weeks at most, but no one could have envisioned it being the entire industry, the entire year. Well, and I felt just the same way you did talking about when you were in Australia and you were worried, could you get home? You know, as this thing started to get going the beginning of March, I was like, well, I bet we can probably still pull it off. I mean, it's, it's the Sydney Royal Easter show. They're not going to cancel that. And then on March 11th, when Houston canceled, I went, well, if one of the biggest events in our industry can cancel, then the largest event of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere can certainly cancel. And I was for, you know, 48 hours in there, I was pretty nervous about what happens if we fly over there and in route or as we land. They pull the plug. We're now stranded. Do we have to quarantine there for two weeks? Can we get back to the United States? Do I have to then quarantine in LA? And at that point, Sarah and I are talking and, and uh, it was the 12th and the question came up, how long do we let this go before we pull the plug on it for our best interests? 
And the next day, Linnell emailed us and took that decision off our hands, which we were pretty sure was coming. And I spoke with her. She's got a, um, I had her as a guest on the podcast and there's so many moving pieces. And that was just from my perspective as an entertainer, from your, from your 30,000 foot view of the fair industry, you know, I heard your interview with Alan Bruce, you did earlier in May. Um, you address some of those processes that this industry has to go through to navigate a crisis like that. Can you take a moment here for our listeners and um, kind of go over that process? Because, I mean, you got everything from the ag side to ride operators to insurance. I mean, there's there's so many moving pieces. Mm-hmm. How do you start to respond and navigate this crisis? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I do have to say, and, and, and it kind of goes back to the basics that any of us face in a situation. Um, you know, when we think about crises or emergency situations, you have to kind of do triage, right? And in the in the process of doing triage, uh, you look at your top priorities, you spend your resources where you have to spend your resources. So I have to say, in all honesty, when that first weekend, second weekend, third weekend of March came for us, actually by the second weekend, we had to, as an association, our own moving parts, we had to have three separate tracks of triage. We had to have a triage for our own meetings because the IAFE is in the meeting business and we had scheduled seven more meetings out through the end of May. And we had hotel contracts, we had registration, we had to figure out what to do, messaging, what was our stance, legal ramifications. We had the, the pri- what I call the primary track, which is how do we help the industry respond? And I will circle back to that. But then we had a third track because we have an office here. We have 13 people. Uh, We have two that work remotely from their home. And so we had to figure out how are we gonna keep our employees safe and how are we going to be in compliance with uh, any regulations? And so those things are all moving simultaneously. And so you pick the one and you deal with the one that has the hottest fire. But when it comes to the industry track, I really think it boils down to communication, communication, communication. And that was communication. When we talk about communication is is two way, right? It's saying and listening, it's listening and saying. That was, we worked very closely with um, the allied organizations. We were in regular contact with Greg Chico at OABA from the carnival side of things, with Ray O'Day from NICA for the uh, concessionaires side of things. And then we also are very um, in close contact always with the International Festivals and Events Association, the CEO and I, we were talking, the CEO of IAVM, International Association of Venue Managers, and we're all just brainstorming. What do we do? What do we do? And we very quickly decided that no one had an answer, but what we needed to do was talk to one another and use the power of networking that we know is the hallmark of our industry. Robert, we launched our very first Let's Talk discussion on March 17th. And I think it was a very quick turnaround and I am so very, very proud of our staff and the work that they put into it. Um, We again, and here's, here's a luck, I guess, if you think about that in early January, we had decided that Kate wanted to try zoom. I had been using free conference calls and I'd had just a, a bad spate of bad luck. And we said, we need some redundant platforms and we need to begin to incorporate video. And so in January, we had made the decision to have three separate 
platforms so that we could have multiple events going on at the same time, multiple redundancy within staff. And so we just very quickly said, okay, get your committees together. Here's the platform. Let's do a let's talk on this. We coordinated each zone uh, to do let's talk sessions just within each zone. We convened a let's talk of our past chairs. Um, and then we started convening every other week a discussion with the state and provincial association executives, right? So uh, not only, you know, Missouri Association Fairs, Colorado, but Rocky Mountain and Western Fairs. And, yep. and we, we actually started, we were convening every Monday night at 6 p.m because we knew there was another conduit to fairs that we can't even reach because they're not our members. And so in the process of all of that, they needed to be talking to their members. And so we ended up helping them out and we became a facilitator. And we, because those at the time, some of them didn't have the technology platform. So we facilitated discussions for Iowa fairs, Illinois fairs, Indiana fairs, Colorado fairs, and just really just talking and listening and then taking everything that we heard and packaging it, putting it out via email, building a COVID uh, dedicated page on our website, any way that we possibly could. And then to put a bow on all of that, doing our very best to utilize the, the most reliable, sound, scientific resources for any information that we would put out. I was already a subscriber to CDC because of uh, other situations of which we have to be aware. I'm already a subscriber to CDC news briefs. DHS has regular meetings. They kept us in price. We were doing twice a week calls with DHS. Uh, I'm also a regular subscriber to SIDRAP and Michael Ulsterholm out of University of Minnesota. And then I added the Johns Hopkins Center for Public Health into my mix of, of regular materials. And then we just scoured those and tried to feed the best sources of information that we possibly could out to our members so that they could make informed decisions. Yeah. And it, it feels like it's been a real struggle, you know, um, at least if you just watch the, the local news, if that's your source, it's been a real struggle to get that information um, because local and national news, it just feels like, you know, the president's going one way, governors are going another, the CDC says one thing and three days later they say another thing. Of course, we have an election year, so it makes this all one big mess. I think it's really easy to be cynical and criticize the CDC and World Health. And I've been in those moments where I'm like, they can't get their act together. But I think the reality is, if you're starting this conversation from a place of bad faith, assuming the other guy is the bad guy, then it's a really difficult situation to overcome. The fact of the matter is, the CDC's never seen something like this in, in modern history. They're trying to get the best information out they can. And yeah, sometimes that means on Monday, they advise this, and on Wednesday afternoon, that changed. And we just Absolutely. have to be patient and roll with those punches. Um, certainly one of the one of the you know legs of our industry that has been decimated in here is our ride operators. And and you spoke a bit with Alan about that on his show. Um, you know, when I think for the ride operators, occasionally we all hear on national news media talk about you know H2B visas. Do you think the general public realize just how important that H2B visa program is? No, they have no concept. They have no concept. And, and again, it, it goes to a lot of the unfortunate rhetoric that is uh, really prevalent uh, right now in front of all of us. But um, you know what? The fact of the matter is anybody that works in the fair industry itself, 
it's hard work. It's hard to work for you as an entertainer. People don't understand what it takes for you physically and mentally to do those shows all day long. They have no concept what it takes from a volunteer fair board to logistically put it. And they certainly do not understand that a mobile amusement ride company going down the road, trying to make their livelihood connecting from place to place requires people who are willing to work hard and willing to work in all sorts of elements. And there are people in this world who are willing to do that but they don't always live right here in the yep. United States or in the neighborhood of a fair. And so, uh, no, people do not understand the H2B visa program. And I think for even some in the fair industry, I have to say, because we've talked about H2B for so long, for many people, it's you hear the words and it's like, okay, here we go again. <laughs> here we go again. But then, so then you think about I think the reality hit home for some of our member fairs whenever they thought, okay, we can go forward. Oh, but our carnival had to send all of the workers home, their yes. H2B visa. 60% of their staff is now gone. And now they, yeah, they've got the equipment, but they don't have enough labor to bring the carnival to you, even if they could make a route. So I think um, it's, it's very fresh. And as we begin to look toward 21, as we look to see towards surviving the outcomes of these elections, I'm hoping that from our membership, when someone says we need to talk to legislators about H2B visas, that they will listen and take action because it is an extremely critical mode of survival for the carnivals and for concessionaires too. There are many yeah. mobile food concessionaires that use H2B visa labor. Yeah. And, you know, you hear like you talk about the rhetoric and you you the traditional rhetoric is, oh, they're taking American jobs. But we know from inside the industry, the number of times these carnivals start advertising for temporary labor for 10 or 12 days, wherever they're going to set up shop. And it's like pulling teeth. They can't get people to do it. But then they've got this whole group of people, whether they're from Mexico or Ecuador or South America, wherever they're coming from, that are willing to come here legally, fill out the paperwork and work hard, and the government throws up that roadblock. What are some of the short-term and long-term implications um, for our ride operators and even our nation's farmers with this program? If, you know, when they send, when they send uh, workers back, like they did, so many did in March or April, mm -hmm. if the industry had reopened by say September, is that something they can get those workers back or, or they, do they have to wait till the next year? Some could, some could not. I know of one company that was able to send them home and bring them back. I know of others that were not able to do that. I do want to make one, one correction to make sure everyone understands. When we talk about H2B uh, visas, they're different than those in agriculture of H1A. Sure. Sure. So a totally different program, but H2B, what a lot of people don't realize, the other aspects, it impacts landscaping, Yep. It impacts fisheries and it impacts tourism, uh, particularly if you look at a place like Wisconsin Dells, you look like the Northeast, major tourist areas rely also upon H2B visa workers. So short term, long term, I don't think anything's going to happen until after the election. And then everybody's going to start strategizing after that, depending on what the outcome is in terms of the strategies to take. What needs to happen is to move it into a process so that it's not subject to whim. And it's not subject to uh, being having to be uh, examined every single time. It's time to look at an allocation of the right number of visas that are needed for the industry, for all of these other industries to do their work 
and then it becomes a matter of, of getting that through and getting it somehow more permanent. You know, the challenge is, and again, rhetoric has inflamed this, but most people don't realize the cost that an employer must go through in order to utilize H2B. They have to pay a humongous amount of money to secure that. They have to transport them. They have to pay them prevailing wages. They have to, they have to provide living quarters and they're all vetted security-wise, they all pass secret, uh, uh, the um, Department of State security before they ever come in. So, yep. um, you know, we're talking about the health of our industry, but not only ours, but many, many other industries. I know the fisheries industry this past summer just, you know, maybe the blessing of COVID for them was there wasn't the demand so much for the restaurants, you know, because they were closed. But, but if the demand is there, and you don't have the labor to go out and catch and process, it's, it impacts a lot of different segments throughout the country. Absolutely. Now, it's the end of October um, when we're recording this. So if you're listening um, in you know November, December of 2020 or somewhere down the line, just so you kind of have a, um, you know, an idea of when this is getting recorded. And our typical fair season is starting to wind down on a normal year about this point. Um, how many fairs does our industry typically produce and how many would you say have canceled for 2020? So our membership hovers at about 1100 fairs globally. Uh, we don't represent every fair in the world uh, and, and not even in the United States. Uh, there are estimates that there could be as many as another thousand fairs in the United States. Uh, no one has a handle on that for sure. Uh, but of the 1100, those I can speak to. And of the 1100, we probably had about 30 that were able to go forward between January 1 and uh, the cancellations that began in March. Uh, right now, I'm tracking another 24 that have gone forward since with at least all of their major components. Uh, I've counted them as a full fair, even if they didn't do a concert series, for example, like Delaware State Fair. Um, but 24, uh, there may be another five or six out there, but not many. So, you know, you start doing the math on all of that. So we're under 10%, well under 10% of our member yeah, fairs. I, I, my guess is, is that if, um, if we get five to 7% of the actual fairs, it's, it's going to be a miracle. Um, you know, to be able to say that, you know, of 24 fairs that have gone forward since, since July, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it I was, has decimated, decimated I was, the industry. I was lucky enough to be at one of them, um, you know, at the fair West Texas over in Abilene. You know, mm -hmm. when all the dominoes started to fall, I looked at, Sarah and I looked ahead at the schedule and, you know, what do we think? And, and of course, early in the, I was hoping that, you know, by summer it would clear up and we'd still get to do OC and, you know, all our major route. But we both agreed that if there was one fair on our route that was going to happen, it would be West Texas because, I, I think there's something with that Texas spirit that is we're going to make this happen come hell or high water. And, mm -hmm. you know, Rochelle managed to do a really great job with it. They had a great signage. Um, a lot of, a lot of folks were wearing masks and were keep, mostly keeping socially distant. But I wanted to ask you about that. Cause I remember watching some of your videos um, from, I think you were at Ozark empire of the mm -hmm. fairs you were able to, to get out to the few that you did get to see this year. What were you seeing with attendance and were they compliant with, with mask wearing and social distancing? Sure. So just to kind of set the stage, I visited the uh, Summit County Fair uh, near Kent, Ohio, uh, en route to visiting uh, the Delaware State Fair. 
and uh, I, I count both of those fairs as going forward full uh, in that now, now, of course, Delaware, it's a major concert venue and they canceled early on, but they did every other component. Uh, I visit, I, I had hoped to visit two other fairs on that trip, but then the governor shut them down in Ohio. I visited Ozark Empire Fair, which obviously is where I spent most of my career. And it's right here. And then uh, just most recently, um, I returned uh, the weekend, actually the weekend of October 23, I went to Denton, Texas, to the North Texas Fair and Rodeo. So here's what I can tell you from all of those. Um, first of all, they're in four very different parts of the country and there's different attitudes and there's different belief systems and there's different health department rules. At Delaware and uh, Summit County Fair in Ohio, uh, there were mandated mask orders and the staff were, were doing absolutely Herculean jobs to remind everyone to please wear their mask. Uh, they provided masks. And for the most part, I found a significant compliance with masks in both of those. Ozark Empire Fair, it, they were not under a mandatory mask mandate except for any interior building activities and they only had two buildings that were, were open. And the same was in Denton, just this, this again, we're talking late October, October 23, 24 is when I was there. Um, social distancing, um, there are people who try and for the most people, no. Right. Uh, when you when you visit, it's pretty easy to see people inside a commercial exhibit building, inside the competitive exhibits building. Most people will be pretty compliant. They you know they'll they'll really watch their distance. I think inside of a building, but from what I know and what I read of the disease, that's where you really should be concerned is when you're inside. When you're outside on the move constantly, it should be probably less of a concern. Uh, in Delaware. Ozark Empire, um, they were very, very good in the carnival areas, but it was the same carnival. Uh, they had adequate signage. They used bicycle barricades to create serpentine queue lines. They, they were very, very creative in the way they managed their queue lines. They had social distancing signs uh, as part of the barricades. Uh, they did a really good job to remind everybody to do it. And here's what you can do in almost every instance. You can look down the midway, Teenagers come to the fair, they may come in separate cars, but their intent is to come as a pack. Yep. And so you'd say, hey guys, social distance, but we came together, we're one unit, right? Even though they maybe came in 10 different cars. So you got this pack of 20 teenagers, they're not gonna, they're not gonna social distance to save their soul. I look at people, it was very evident that for the most part, young families, and I would say when I talk about young, I'm talking about parents, 40 and under generally were masked up their children if they were of you know above five years old they were masked up older people typically the woman was masked the man was not or the man was wearing it down under the nose stubborn bunch yeah just there and and probably it's that batch that 40 to 60 year old batch very little compliance uh that that i could see and people pulling them off quite quite often uh social distancing i found that in most places the uh, concessionaires were very good to remind people to social distance if they were set up, for example, like at Delaware, where they were on asphalt, uh, you know, they, they, they put markers out, whether it was duct tape or um, uh, fluorescent tape, they put markers and they, they tried to manage their queue lines. Um, uh, most of the fairs were very good about trying to intentionally add spaces 
Uh, I know at Delaware State Fair, I mean, they cut the number of uh, food vendors that they were going to have just so that they could adequately space everyone out. Um, I went to a rodeo uh, in Denton and they managed the capacity with security guards, but even so people people don't necessarily social distance. It's, it goes against our human nature when we're in an event. Especially, yeah, I mean, this is, it's a social event. I mean, if you were to tell people to socially distance at your public library, they'd probably be like, okay. Okay. <laughs> but we're all going to, a, we're going to a party. We're going to our state or our county's biggest party. You know, we've got flashing lights and corn dogs and, and, you know, racing pigs. We all want to be together and have a party. Um, yeah, I understand it. Um, you know, I've spoken in this process of, of recording this season of the podcast with a bunch of fair managers um, who are also personal friends. And I get the general feeling that most fairs can survive this shutdown if they only lose 2020. But there are a couple who've conveyed to me privately that if they lost 2020 and they lose 21, they could be in real trouble. What's your feeling on what it will take um, for our industry to recover from this shutdown? Well, we, we need to get some events happening. I think it's, um, it's, it's a very real concern. The farther we go into 21, if someone has to lose two complete fares, but, but almost more so than that, if we could begin to see some movement with the ability for the non-fair facility rentals for probably 85% of our members, uh, that is a significant business stream. Uh, for some fairs in some parts of the country, non-fair rental revenue may be more than the revenue of the fair itself. Sure. And so if we could begin to see some of that begin to recover, that's going to go a long ways toward it. Um, you know, for the first time in our association's history, we have asked the United States Congress for funding uh, to provide some relief to fairs. We have a bill out there, uh, House Bill 7883, which is uh, co-sponsored. It is by, has bipartisan support. It is uh, uh, representative Democrat Panetta from California, Representative Republican Long from Missouri, co-sponsors. It's now up to 50 some co-sponsors, has strong bipartisan support to do something that is right. And it's in the scheme of things, a meager amount of money, $500 million uh, that could be distributed to agricultural affairs through the United States Department of Agriculture. Depending on what happens after the election, we're going to keep on pushing on that. But some really good news, Robert, has come out in the last two weeks. And that is through the efforts of fairs, through the efforts of fair associations in states, uh, for certain, um, Tennessee, I think three weeks ago, announced uh, a little over $3 million from their state CARES money that they are allocating to fairs in Tennessee. Oh, and then in, in the wake of that, just this past Monday on October 26th, Governor Kim Reynolds in Iowa through the Iowa Economic Development Authority, they announced $6.6 million to be awarded in grants to fairs in Iowa. And so that is a huge boost, a huge shot in the arm. For many of those fairs, it's going to cover utility bills. It's going to cover, yep. it's going to cover some of their other fixed costs. I know in Pennsylvania, not necessarily through the state, but through county allocations, there have been a number of county fairs in Pennsylvania that have also received CARES funds. So we're seeing some money on that. And that's where it's been very important to have state associations, which are out there and advocating and working very, very hard for their members. So I think we're going to have to have some relief to help cover some of these unforeseen costs. And, you know, that's sometimes 
that's a hard pill to swallow sometimes for our fair industry. You know, we're rather independent. Uh, we want to make it on our own. We run things like a good business, but this is an extraordinary circumstance. I think my biggest concern going forward is the fact that unless we begin to see um, again, some relief from the rhetoric and take the politics out of it, we have got to find a way for health departments to uh, communicate with each other and begin to model what has been successful in some areas. And, and so, for example, to give you a really good example, if Texas can go forward and if a fair can go forward and two weeks from now we don't see a significant arc on the disease, and, and so North Texas Fair, we're going to have that model then why cannot, why, why does the state of Colorado continue to say, we don't care how large your facility is over 12,000 square feet, you can't have more than 175 people. If you've got a million square feet, 175 people, there's no uh, sense to that. And so right. I'm hoping that we can through, again, these 24 fairs that I'm tracking very carefully, I'm hoping we can develop um, some case studies to say, look, here is what the fair did. Here, it, here are the mitigation uh, uh, tactics that they took. And here's what we know. There was no appreciable change in the arc of the disease in the two weeks following. Yeah. And that's and what, so, when I was talking with um, Courtney Conkle, we had her as a guest on the show, mm -hmm, terrific mm -hmm. fair manager from the Wyoming State Fair. Mm -hmm. She said that um, while she was, she was a little nervous going into it, because I mean, her big issue was the hierarchy of needs is the health and safety of our guests. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how great your midway is, how amazing the magician is, how great the caramel apple tastes. If they're not safe, it does, none of it matters. Mm -hmm. And she said her, her most difficult two weeks of this entire process was that two weeks after she was mm -hmm. multiple times a day, checking with the health department, just holding her breath. And mm -hmm. luckily she conveyed to me that not only was there not a spike, the cases actually went down. Not mm -hmm. that that was a cause and effect of having the fair, right. but the relief of we actually had it saw a slight drop in that time. I, I can't mm -hmm. imagine being on the planning side. You know, it was awful for us as entertainers. You know, we, we lose all our income and we go, okay, now what? Mm -hmm. But the problems for on the fair side, the planning side, just keep rolling and keep the punches keep coming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've spent a long time in this fair industry what impact do these fairs have on their local communities? I mean, it's, it's so many people see us as just we're five days or 10 days in the summer. Right. But like you said, everything from, you know, boat shows, the, the off-season rentals are massive. Where, where does that impact come in for the community where it really starts to devastate the community too? So I think, I think it's going to happen on it and it does happen on three or four different fronts. And so you look at the, let's look at one in terms of fair operations. So if the fair doesn't happen, you know, I know in my fair alone, I hired over 250 people. So you take 250 people who are working for two weeks and maybe that's not a lot of money, but that's an infusion of cash into a community. That's an infusion of payroll taxes that's being paid. So that's out the window, right? So, so large or small, it's just a matter of scale. But if you had employees, that's out the window. The second impact comes from the relationships that almost every fair has with the nonprofits within its community. So as an example, I'll go back to my days at Ozark Empire Fair. We worked with about 20 different nonprofit groups within our community. And depending upon the year, we as an organization 
paid out to those organizations thirty-five to fifty thousand dollars. I was paying the cross-country track team to park cars, paid the cheerleaders to clean up crap, uh, uh, cash, uh, trash, not cash, but trash. Um, you know, uh, we would hire a Kiwanis club to sell tickets, and then in many communities, then those clubs, in addition to providing services, maybe um, they run the my Lions Club Duck Pond, you know, that was a huge money raiser for the Lions Club, or they sell beer, or they sell food. Now then, if you think about what a Kiwanis Club, a Lions Club, a Sertoma Club does in your community, I know here in my community, it puts eyeglasses on people, it puts shoes on kids, it puts backpacks filled with food. Yep. Now, where are they, where are they going to get that money? Yeah, There's no other opportunity. My dad's a retired pa- or a uh, past president of the Rio Rancho Rotary Club. And mm-hmm. yeah, the, the outreach and, and service to the community and mm-hmm. they're, they're stifled. Exactly. And then the third impact, of course, comes. And, and this, again, it's a matter of scale. But regardless of the size of a fair, the businesses within a community even though some of them may bellyache that they say, oh, it's time for the fair. My business is going to hurt. It doesn't. So you talk about the, the convenience stores, the fuel, the hotels, the restaurants. And think about this. I, I listened to a food vendor say this one time. He goes, uh, I love my local tire dealer, but I've never in my life bought a tire locally. I buy all of my tires at a time when I need my tires and I'm out on the road. And so people, when, when I would work, I worked with three different carnivals at Ozark Empire Fair, and they were always at Walmart. They were getting RVs. They had a local mechanic coming. And so they have to maintain their equipment going down the road. Now, those expenditures are not there either. And we don't even have a handle on the overall economic impact, meaning that money that has rolled over into the community. It, it's in billions upon billions of dollars. Yeah, I agree. Um now, speaking of impacts on the industry, just a few weeks ago, um, you and the board there with IFE had to make a really difficult decision about 2020 in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of take us through the thought process on that and what was the feeling when you finally had to say, it's official, it's not happening. Yeah, well, we spent, you know, we spent since last March um, talking with our members and helping them go through what we identified as a grieving process when you had to cancel your event and we found ourselves with the tables turned. Um, We felt it was important for our industry to plan for a safe convention. We were working very, very closely with um, the Henry B. Gonzalez Convention Center. They were getting GBAC STAR accredited certification, which is the gold standard right now in terms of facility accreditation with regard to disinfectant cleaning and policies. Uh, we worked with all of the hotels. We felt we, you know, when you, again, when you talk about health and safety, you know, uh, you don't want anybody getting sick on your watch. And so we felt that we had done everything in our power to make sure that the environment in which we would gather people, we could be as safe as possible. We worked with our wonderful 2020 convention program committee led by Jill Albanese from Wisconsin State Fair and, and what a great committee she had to come up with innovative program that we thought would be of interest. We decided right off the bat, some people could not travel, would not travel. So let's offer some type of virtual for them. So we came up with the hybrid idea, but Robert in the end, when it came down to it, we were watching registrations come on and when we got past that first registration deadline, and, and typically what happens, 
and it's the same for a fair when their their entry deadline comes for registration for livestock or exhibits you get 80 percent in the last 48 hours (laughs) and so we were october one (laughs) and two we're just watching 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 and we got to work on october three and said this does not look good and so we began to do some analysis and we went back and we knew right off the bat that there were 13 states plus one county in Idaho and the city of Chicago, that they had mandatory government orders that if someone traveled to Texas specifically and then came back, they would have to automatically quarantine for anywhere, excuse me, from 10 to 14 days upon arrival. Now, depending on what your business is, quarantining for 14 days, it's hard to return to normal life. And so when we looked at that, it became, and we looked at how many people from those states came last year, Mm -hmm. we quickly realized, and then of course, nobody from Australia, no one from Canada, no one from England, no one from Korea could come. It was uh, 67% of our projected attendance was prohibited by government order from traveling or would have to be in such restriction when they got home, it was not practical. And so we knew we could not go forward at that point in time. We simply could not. And so it was, you know, on one sense, it's a no brainer, right? Because this organization has to remain financially stable in in order to serve the industry. And so you have to protect that. Um, But it is, it was very difficult. It was very difficult on, 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 particularly our our staff, they work so very, very hard. They put their heart and soul into this. And, you know, when I think about work, I try to lead with the idea that with employees, they're here for one third of their day. They have the rest of the two thirds of their day, you know, and, and I, uh, all of our staff are dealing with the same stresses that everyone else is in their personal lives, right? And so it, it was really, really challenging. But um, <laughs> one of them told me the next day, I was kind of making the rounds saying, how are you doing? Are you okay? And, and, and she said, I'm too busy to worry about this. Let's get to work. We've got stuff to do. <laughs> so the right attitude certainly is going to get everybody through. Absolutely. And I don't want to be, you know, all, all doom and gloom. Obviously we've had more than enough doom and gloom in, in 2020, not only from the pandemic, but the, the insanity of this election year. So I think if we can just look back for a minute, what are the silver linings and small victories um, that we have seen in this industry? What are, what are you seeing this year that are little positives that give you hope for the future? Sure. Well, first of all, I've always known that fair people are passionate about what they do. And I've watched them stand up in face of not only absolutely heart-wrenching decisions, but sadly, they have stood up in the um, backlash that has happened in so many communities that were so divisive over the mere fact that the fair canceled and they've stood strong because they're passionate. So it reinforced that passion and resiliency are part and parcel of what this industry is. It helps for us to always remember history. And and a lot of people have studied this and and know that uh, in times after the 1918, 1919 pandemic, fairs came back stronger than ever. After World War II, fairs came back stronger than ever. So that hope is there. And I see that all the time. But also, and as it happens, I just had a chance to talk to a concessionaire while I was at Denton, Texas, and she told me that, you know, as hard as it is, she had an opportunity to do something she never has been able to do because she's a lifelong concessionaire, and that was take a summer vacation. Yeah. 
and she took her parents and her daughters. They loaded up the RV and trailers and they they went to Mount Rushmore and they went to Yellowstone as a family. And they've never, ever been able to do that. And I've heard that time and time again, uh, as hard as it is for everyone in uh, the service side of this industry, entertainers, concessionaires, carnivals, there are success stories of people getting to do some things they never would get to do because you don't have summers and getting to do things with with family that's not business related. And so I think those are things I think I, as I talk with people, they understand that we will never, ever again take for granted what it's like to be a part of an amazing event to attend events, I, I'm never ever going to take for granted going to a movie theater. Believe me. Yeah. And you know, going to eat in a restaurant will it? I'm never going to take that for granted again. And so I hear those types of things on and on again. And uh, we started a process just this week with our uh, staff meeting. We started off the meeting. What are you grateful for? You know. Amen. And it's time. It's time to sit back and say, I'm grateful because I've, I've got a roof over my head. I'm, I'm grateful I have a job. I'm grateful I have friends that'll listen to me when I'm so down in the dumps. And so maybe it's been that, that we no longer take for granted what we assumed was normal. We have found ways to celebrate with family, even though it might be challenging at times and we might not have the money to do it. But I, I think those are some, some of the silver linings I've seen. I would agree. And you guys, you know, your IFE team has... Uh, you know, another little silver lining come up for the first time in God knows how long you all get to spend Thanksgiving with your families. Exactly. For, right. You know, anybody, you know, for all of us that show up Thanksgiving weekend, you know, that, that Sunday or Monday after stuffing ourselves full of Thanksgiving with our family, you guys get there, what, 10 days or so early. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's a Thanksgiving blackout for you guys every year. It's just part of the job. It is there. Uh, I've been on staff for 14 years and there's been one Thanksgiving whenever the, the luck of the calendar Move. and a situation at the hotel pushed us one week later. So, and, you know, when you look at people on staff, uh, uh, Steve and Kate and Missy and Rebecca, they've been here for many, 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 many years for them to actually be able to celebrate together with their families. Uh, yes, that is a true, true blessing. I know my mom is excited that I'm going to be at home for Thanksgiving. Excellent. And, you know, speaking of gratitude, it seems maybe a little, a little funny to say, but I am grateful, even though it's been a crazy year, I'm grateful now for technology more than ever. You know, can you imagine going through this pandemic in 1918 when exactly. you, you couldn't keep it? Literally, I've spoken to more favorite people this week. My goal for this, like I said, was to, to share the stories of our industry from all sorts of different points of view of the industry of what's happened this year. And I didn't realize somewhere around Wednesday, I realized this is really good for my spirit because you're the 15th recording we've done this week. It's (laughs) it's like a little mini convention on my podcast Mm -hmm. to see everybody. And I didn't realize just how important that was to -hmm. keep in touch with everybody. Say, Hey, how are you doing? Um, Some folks are doing better than others. um, But just that camaraderie to say, Hey, we're still here. Um, to hear a familiar voice has really meant a lot to me this week. Um, we, listen, we're just about out of time and I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. B- before we go, everyone on the show goes through a little series of speed round questions. I saw that. <laughs> these, are the, these are the hardest questions you will ever have to deal with. Okay. But they will define you for, for centuries. Your whole legacy is based <laughs> on these next six questions, Marla. All right. I'm ready. Number one, what's your favorite ride at the fair? 
<laughs> the the uh, Ferris wheel, but not the old fashioned kind. The 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 new kind that has the gondolas. I that I don't like to be over the scary the top. Oh, I want over the, the top. You like the gondola, so you swing on yes. the inside of the wheel. Got it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Question number two: You grew up within the ag industry. What's your favorite farm animal? Dairy cattle, of course. Dairy cattle, of course. Holsteins, black and white. <laughs> and next question, funnel cake or fried Oreos? Neither. Neither. Thank you for being honest. I'm like, <laughs> I can have one fried Oreo and then I'm like, that's ah, just too much for me. I have not put a funnel cake in my mouth since about 1988. So. Wow. <laughs> well, if you did, though, I mean, you run like 700 miles a day, so you would <laughs> run it off in no time. Uh, question four of six. First celebrity crush. I'm showing my age. Bobby Sherman. Wow. Okay. Number five. Uh, I think I might have just answered this inadvertently. Do you go for a hike or do you go for a run? When I am physically able, I will go for a run first before I will go for a hike. And when you travel, which you do a lot, what is one item you absolutely must have with you? Besides my cell phone? <laughs> yeah, that's a given. A book. And, and it is either, uh, if I'm driving, it's a physical book that I can hold. If I'm flying, I load up three or five on my uh, Surface uh, tablet that I can read. For sure. Listen, Marla, um, Sarah and I just really want to express our gratitude to you and everyone at IFE for all your hard work. I have a career that I adore because the people like you and everybody else in that office that you're sitting in work so hard year round. And um, we're just really grateful for that. So if folks want to know more about you or, or get in touch with you and get some information on this pandemic and how we're responding to it, what can they, how can they reach you? www.fairs, F-A-I-R-S, and A-N-D, expos, E-X-P-O-S dot com. Uh, specifically, when you click there under resources, we've got a whole page and lots and lots of resources devoted to COVID. Uh, there is a contact page on us on that, and it will go to a form, uh, but it'll eventually make its way to me if need be. And I will say that uh, communicating via the website probably is the best way for us because it's constantly monitored. Uh, some people send us messages via Facebook, it may not be the most efficient way to, to get it to us. But uh, certainly we do have a Facebook presence, IAFE, the network. Supposedly we have Instagram and Twitter, but that's not my area of expertise. <laughs> right. So, uh, and just to the, the folks listening, I would highly recommend, it's real easy for us to keep in touch with our fellow entertainers or our fellow concessionaires, but, you know, shoot Steve or Rebecca or Kate, you know, an email through the website and just check in on them too, because they are definitely grieving the way the rest of us in this industry are grieving. And I think we get through this together. Absolutely. Um, I'm really glad you could come on the show today, Marla. Thanks so much thank, for your time. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it so much. You've been listening to the fair game podcast. Fair game is a production of Robert Smith presents for more information. Please visit Robert Smith presents.com. 